Welcome to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I'm your host, Deb Maisner. I'm a registered nurse, health coach, and alcohol-free badass. I have found that there's more than one way to address drinking. If you've ever asked yourself if drinking is taking more than it's giving, or if you've found that you're drinking more than usual, you may have reached your own alcohol tipping point. The Alcohol Tipping Point is a podcast for you to find tips, tools, and thoughts to change your drinking. Whether you're ready to quit forever or a week, this is the place for you. You are not stuck and you can change. Let's get started. Welcome back to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. Today I have Maya Siemens. Maya is a level three optimal state yoga therapist and integrative Ayurvedic wellness counselor. She specializes in embodied mental health practices and provides whole person compassionate care to individuals with symptoms of trauma, addiction, anxiety, and depression. Maya works as a yoga therapist at a virtual intensive outpatient program for adolescents and young adults and sees individual clients virtually through her private practice, Integrated Mind-Body Therapy. I hope that you enjoy this conversation that I have with Maya. Thank you for listening. I just want to say thank you for having this conversation again. It's wonderful to see you. And and for new listeners and new people, I want to just acknowledge Maya as being an extra special person. I was able to meet her when Mary Tilson and I did the Taos retreat in that was in May. So I'm I'm just delighted to have you on the show and get to know you a little bit more, Maya, and then get to know about what you do, because what you do is so interesting. So can you just give an overall about yourself and, and what your unique job is? Thanks for that, Deb. Yeah, and I have to say I'm really excited to be here as well. It was such a pleasure to connect with your community and just see what a powerful community that you've built. So it's an honor to to connect with your listeners here as well. So I am a, a yoga therapist and an Ayurvedic counselor, and really I help women work at treating the root causes of physical and mental and emotional imbalances. Uh, I work one-on-one with people, and I also work at uh, a a virtual intensive outpatient program. So for young people, for adolescents and young adults who are, you know, in a mental health crisis and they're receiving mental health treatment, I provide yoga therapy and Ayurvedic complementary treatment in, in that setting as well. Yeah. And when you first told me that back in Taos, I, I was like, okay, <laughs> back up. Cause I had never heard of yoga therapy. And so can you share what that entails and how that helps people? Yoga therapy is, it's like the therapeutic application of, of these ancient yogic texts, which essentially mapped out for us a pathway to healing. It's beautiful philosophy and and like a, a real roadmap to practical healing. And now that we have all of this incredible Western scientific research, another way of saying what yoga therapy is, it's a it's a roadmap to regulating the nervous system. So so in a clinical setting like intensive outpatient treatment, yoga therapy is a complementary support service that supports clients with kind of practical embodied tools for for 
regulating the nervous system and for coping with big, difficult emotions and and life transitions. So so yeah, that's kind of the short the short version. But let me know if you have any more questions about that. Oh, you know I do. So <laughs> so I well, I love this. I love how Western medicine is now starting to incorporate more of Eastern medicine and more of the woo. Like I like I call it the woo. Totally. Um, but it's kind of those alternative modalities. And and like you said, there's more and more like scientific research that's backing like mindfulness and how helpful it is for us and yoga and and acupuncture and just you name it all these different modalities and so I think it's really cool how we're doing all this integrative care to give people options besides like okay take medicine maybe do some talk therapy or or whatever your situation so I think that's really cool and so when you're doing yoga therapy what that makes me think like okay are people doing are they actually doing yoga positions and using their body and like how does that work That's such a great question and I think when I got into yoga therapy that's what I assumed we'd be like you know I'd be teaching yoga classes but but in reality it it depends on who's in front of me and for some and, you know, getting into your body and moving, especially for those of us with trauma, is can feel really unsafe. And so what's beautiful about yoga therapy is there is a, a large variety of tools because sometimes it, it takes a lot of trust building and capacity to even get to a point where it's safe enough to to kind of drop into the body and do physical practices. So I have clients who will say, you know, I'll, I'll, I always ask before we do any kind of movement, I ask, you know, what is your relationship to or, or resistance to yoga or mindfulness? And a lot of the young people, you know, their only experience with this stuff is like being forced to do it in a residential treatment center. So they, they have, you know, for, for a lot of them or, you know, in, um, I hear the same thing for folks coming out of drug and alcohol treatment, like I was forced to do this yoga thing. I hate it, you know? So, so yeah, I think to answer your question, it's, it's, it can be that. And ultimately we want to go there because, you know, we know that trauma lives in the body. And so involving the body in the healing and connecting with the, the wisdom and the, the signals of the body is super important to, um, to the healing process and to starting to, empower ourselves to understand what we need and and how we need to set up our lives so that we can support our own healing and balance but it it might not start there you know it really it's it it starts with relationship always relationship and the yoga sutras are 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 such beautiful powerful ancient wisdom that that I can counsel from from that so you know a huge uh, principle in in yoga is non-harming so Maybe we have a, you know, we learn about self-compassion or we talk about, we can reflect on and discuss different topics as it relates to non-harm. So there's, there's a ton of entry points into yoga therapy that, that don't, definitely don't have to start with the body and the breath. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Well, let's go back to your experience with drinking and addiction. I would love to hear more about your story. Thanks for asking that. You know, I, I haven't been asked this too many times, so I actually am, I appreciate the, the opportunity to speak on this. 
So yeah, when I think back to my story of, of addiction and, and my relationship to alcohol and substances, I have to really start with 13 year old being diagnosed with ADHD and being prescribed Adderall at 13 and not really given any, you know, at that time it was very much like we notice she's, you know, distracted. She's not getting things in on time. She's looking out the window during seventh period math class. Like we need to support her. She has attention deficit. So here's this drug. It's going to help you be better at sports. It's going to help you focus better in school and get more organized so you can get better grades and be, you know, go to a better school or whatever the track is that I was sort of being pushed into. But I was never given kind of the emotional support or even the support to to be curious about what that substance was doing to my mood and to my relationship to my peers and just kind of the 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 emotional kind of piece of like being diagnosed with ADHD and and what that meant for me as a 13 year old. So I, so yeah, I start there because at a very young age I was learning to to regulate myself and my energy levels and my mood with an outside substance like Adderall. So so that's where it starts. And then, you know, as a teenager, Adderall became like this kind of social currency, like everybody wanted it. I remember my, I mean, my peers, we explicitly, I was explicitly taught by my peers through like conversations, like, you know, this is how you take it to lose weight. You know, this, this is fun. We can drink longer and be more social. So I, I began to learn from my peers. Cause again, these conversations weren't really happening with the doctor or with my parents. It was like, this is, this is the drug to help you with your schoolwork. But in the in the meantime, you know, us as teenagers are like, well, we can do this is what it can do. And so I learned how to, you know, be more fun and party longer and uh, drink more. And so it it kind of turned into this way of, I, I think, ultimately wanting to connect with people and fit in. And and that was sort of the the gateway into later more heavy drinking and cannabis use to sort of come down off of that off of the Adderall. Yeah, and it sounds like, I know there's more to your story, but it sounds like you're, I'm just thinking about the pressure that we're putting our teens under, and and it sounds like they wanted to give you that drug because they're like, okay, we need you to not be looking out the window. You need to get good grades. You need to go to a college. You need to fit in, you know, you need to be quote unquote normal, and here's a drug that's going to help you be normal, and I'm I'm just thinking about Oh, I I just feel bad for teenagers and all the pressure they have on themselves to to be perfect and to be better than perfect too, and just to get into the good schools and how that starts early and how it wasn't okay for you to look out the window during math class or whatever. <laughs> right, right. And you know, if they had given me something I was interested in, I would have been very much engaged. <laughs> sure. So so the Adderall then kind of became social currency. You probably could share it with your friends, maybe even people use it for multiple reasons. And then so you're you're drinking, smoking pot, taking Adderall and and then what happens? Totally. And you know, I my father is a teacher and so mm-hmm. it's in the middle of high school, our whole family moved to a boarding school in Vermont. And we lived on campus 
And, you know, we had a dorm attached to our house. And this was the first time I was exposed to kind of a, a level of, of kind of a, elite wealth of my peers. You know, I had before this, I was, you know, still attending a private school, upper middle class for sure. But but then I was kind of planted in a, a boarding school where I was exposed to a, a level of wealth I never had before. And it turns out and, and also I'll say like the the kids at the boarding school were a lot of them were being sent there because there was some kind of issue either in school or in the home life. So so their parents were sending them away. And, you know, a lot of them also to just get a better education or because their family went to boarding school and it was something they wanted their kids to have that experience of. But with that came an exposure to to a level of drinking and drug use that I had never uh, been exposed to before. So in those years at boarding school, to fit in and and to kind of be be a, a person there and just the culture was heavy, heavy drinking. And to this day, to look back at it, I, I kind of, I still almost can't believe the extent to which in high school, you know, on this boarding school campus, the the alcohol and drug use was was so normalized day, night. So it was, it was really, that's where I learned to drink and learned that you know, this is what we do. This is, I, th- that was how I learned how to connect with people and how to, I, you know, kind of forge my identity is like, this is, this is what I do. This is how I yeah, connect and relate to others. Um, so yeah, that was a big piece of it as well. That's a unique experience. I mean, I, I know that we definitely had a heavy drinking culture, I just grew up in a small town in Idaho, but I'm thinking like, what, I wonder what made it so intense at your boarding school and maybe it was access to more funds. Like y'all, they could so. afford more of the the drugs and the alcohol. And then if they're, they don't have parents, like all of that kind of freedom, even though you're at a boarding school, like what do you think made it such an intense experience? You know, I think we had access to kind of like second homes on the weekend. So there was a lot of partying with without parental supervision, like that was really accessible. And, you know, I think there was also a lot of trauma, you know, a lot of a lot of kids were sent there and and there was some deep trauma. So I think access, privilege, I think opportunities to to be unsupervised. And I think uh, just in general, a culture, of, a culture of drinking that was sort of accepted by families and parents and, and allowed. But I think there was also a lot of trauma there amongst this particular population. You know, that I remember kids used to tell me like, you're you're so lucky, you're, you know, because they'd see the relationship with that I had with my parents, and it, that was hard for me to understand because I'm like, but wait, you can buy whatever you want, but but yeah, I think I think there was a lot of trauma there too. Yeah, yeah. And then, so what happened after boarding school with you? Yeah, so then I went on to college, and I think I I continued this like pursuit of perfection and continued to use Adderall, continued to use alcohol and and cannabis. And then I got into a pretty intense profession. I went in the the I was very passionate and decided that the the most radical thing I could do in my life would be to commit to being a public school educator. And so I went to graduate school to at a 
you know, I chose a school that was specifically set up to support preparing teachers for being public school educators in urban settings, mm-hmm. which doesn't exist. There's not a lot of them. So I was determined to to be well prepared. And, you know, I found myself in a public school in Northern California, in Oakland, California, that was, you know, set up to to take kids that were kicked out from from other larger public schools and we had less staff, less funding, and the school kind of ran on the grit of the teachers and the passion of the teachers. And so I found myself in this environment where I was rewarded for, you know, doing above, going above and beyond for working around the clock, for saying yes to every extra thing I, I was presented with. And there was another big drinking culture. I mean, I remember it would be like noon. And I mean, it was a stressful, stressful environment. And the teachers, you'd see the teachers and they're like, we were already making plans for, for five o'clock after work, you know, and that was Mm. kind of got through the day. And I think there was so much stress and such a desire to help, but also there was a lot of loss that I was experiencing. I mean, my first year, a student I was very close to was, was shot and killed. And, and I, I just, the drinking was the the tool, the coping skill that I had learned from a young age. And that's how I just was able to continue on working and showing up and not kind of dealing with the, the, the depth of the loss and stress that I was kind of working under. Wow. I didn't know that you had started out as a teacher. And I mean, just these helping professions, teachers, nurses, you name it, just, and, and, there's there you're right you're kind of like they are they are themselves drinking cultures and normalizing it and also you're like they're so front facing like you're putting on this persona and you have to be on all day or all shift and and you're not really like authentically you I feel like and so I, I noticed so much more burnout related to those kinds of professions. Also where you have to hide if you have a problem because it could affect your career. I mean, you could get fired or disciplined. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I resonate with everything you just said, 100%. So you worked as a public school teacher and then, I mean, because how did we get to where you're at now? <laughs> well, you know, in the in the in yoga philosophy, they say like your your the your rock bottom is the best day of your life. So I had the blessing of a rock bottom, um, mm-hmm. that you know, of total and complete burnout, and you know, I had the opportunity to. I ended a contract at a school. The position was not; they didn't need me for the next year, so I qualified for unemployment. I took that and I moved home for a full year and didn't work. And I just started to take care of myself. <laughs> and that's where this all started. But, you know, the 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 drinking remained. The drinking was still present. So I was bringing in yoga. I was starting to eat healthier. But that was still there. And so that the journey with alcohol continued for a, for a few more years after that. And it's 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 taken me it, it took me a while to to remove that piece and kind of get to the the root of what was driving that in the first place cuz that was that was a big part of me being able to remove alcohol. Mm. But, uh, what about like your Adderall? So yeah, I no longer take Adderall. I did 
I, I, I did take it, you know, for a few years after teaching and ultimately I had built up enough coping skills and to, to feel confident that I was ready to let it go. And, you know, for me, it's a, it's a choice that feels really aligned. And I know for some people it's really necessary, but because now I have my life set up where I'm, you know, I'm doing what I'm passionate about and I'm, I have a schedule where I can really take care of myself. I, I, I don't, I don't rely on it anymore. And, and I'm, that's a, a choice that, you know, I, I feel really lucky that I've been able to make. Yeah. And thanks for pointing that out. I mean, medication definitely has its role in, in lots of different conditions and it's, it's personal, it's choice too. Cause it sounds like when you were in junior high, you didn't have that choice to even take it in the first place. And, you know, even when teaching, like I just, I didn't have the, the kind of foundational skills and awareness and, and because I was in such a stressful environment, I mean, that was the only way I knew how to, how to show up. And so it, it took a lot of work for me to have the confidence and, and capacity within myself to navigate life and showing up without Adderall. So it's, it's, it's required a lot of work. And then what do you think about alcohol for you has made that like one of the more difficult substances to give up? So, you know, I kind of, when I first quit alcohol, it was kind of in the same like perfectionist way. Like I'm like, all right, I'm doing all this yoga and I'm still kind of having issues. I still don't feel there's still, you know, I'm still dealing with anxiety. I'm still dealing with the depression. I, I still was sort of having these cycles throughout my month where I was feeling good some, some of the month and feeling kind of off the rest of the month. So I initially, when I quit alcohol, I'm like, all right, well, this is, this is the one thing left. Like if I quit alcohol, my whole life will be perfect and everything will be fine. And we can just like, you know, move on. And, you know, it turned out I, I removed alcohol and I still had a bunch of difficulties that I was faced with. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, you know, my belief is that ultimately we do things because they're serving some kind of purpose for us. So, so I, w- I was using alcohol as a resource to, n- to manage something that I, I, I didn't bring in a, another resource to, to help me manage that thing that was still there. And so when I removed alcohol, I, I was still having these fluctuations of mood in my month. And I think I was initially, and I, and I, you know, wasn't getting therapy. I, I hadn't kind of done that deeper emotional work. And so I, I went back to it because I'm, because it didn't, it didn't do what I expected of it. <laughs> Removing it didn't give me the, the perfect life that I expected. So I figured, you know, well, I guess it's not the alcohol, right? <laughs> Well, I I really appreciate you sharing that. It's not everybody's experience that they remove the alcohol and it's rainbows and daisies. Like you're still you. And it can, for me, you know, for me, it made things so much better. And for a lot of people, they see they see different stories. They see things on Instagram like, oh, all I need to do is remove alcohol. My life will be perfect and amazing. And that's just not all, always the case. So I appreciate you sharing your experience. Because, you know, ultimately there was an underlying, you know, I have ADHD and I, you know, I have a a mood disorder related to my cycle. And so removing the alcohol, I'm like, 
now I'm, I'm left to feel all of that, which was almost too much for my system. And so it's really taken this journey in yoga therapy and Ayurveda that's helped me become more aware of these cycles throughout my month and have empowered tools to work with it at the level of the nervous system, at the level of my digestion, at the level of my breath. And now I realize um, alcohol is necessary to, to not have in my life because now that I'm paying attention and I have the capacity in my system to feel it all and pay attention to it, I know what alcohol was doing for me and I, and I, and I have now a new resource. But because what, what the alcohol was doing was helping me to manage the, the moods that I was experiencing throughout the month. And now that I've, I'm aware of that and I have different tools, I'm, I'm now empowered and confident in my, in my sobriety. Yay. Well, <laughs> let's talk about that. Cause one of the things we wanted to talk about today was how alcohol impacts hormonal health. And you're kind of alluding to like your cycle and can you share about hormonal health and alcohol? Absolutely. Yeah. So so, you know, I'm I'm speaking from the lens of yoga and Ayurveda and, you know, hormones were not even um, coined or, or didn't emerge. We didn't have this language of hormones until 1905. And so from the, for the lens of yoga and Ayurveda, we we don't use hormone as, as like a, a term, but we have a different way of looking at hormones. So I just want to kind of preface my explanation of hormones with that. But and Maya, before you get into hormones, can you just share a little bit about Ar Ayurveda and what that is? Of course. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So Ayurveda is the sister science to yoga. So yoga is, I kind of described earlier, this pathway to healing that lays out different ethical principles and, and guidelines to, to living and breath practices, different ways of relating to our inner experience. And Ayurveda is, is similar in that it's a, a whole person approach. So we look at the whole system. We don't just look at a, the hormonal system or just look at gut health. We look at the whole human system. And we have different ways of, in Ayurveda, it's, it's, it's like a, a roadmap to navigating imbalances. That is, it's comprehensible and manageable and meaningful and and ayurveda like the key to health is is finding balance so we have you know ways to really assess each individual and and what imbalances are sort of arising for them and then we just like in yoga we have a ton of tools that you know we choose for the person depending on their their stage of life and their needs and you know their unique you know makeup to help support them in coming back into balance. It's an ancient wisdom and, and it's all about finding balance. And it sounds like it's like the holistic, whole health, the whole totally. person. Totally, totally. Okay, thank you for sharing that. So going back to hormonal health and alcohol and that whole connection. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Hormones are messengers between our mind and our body. That's kind of an Ayurvedic perspective on hormones. And, you know, hormones are, they're chemical messengers that control and coordinate the functions of all of our tissues and organs in the body. So each hormone is secreted from a particular gland and gets distributed throughout the body. 
And so proper functioning of our of our whole body system really relies on like this finely tuned release of of hormones in the right amount and at the right time. And alcohol is proven, right? We have plenty of evidence that that supports this that alcohol off alters and impacts the functioning of the hormone releasing glands and the target tissues. So alcohol so from an ayurvedic perspective and i and just like a whole person perspective we really want to look at the impact of alcohol on our whole inner ecosystem so it's it's not that just like you know alcohol and and this is true like i i'm sure like a a, a doctor and md could get into like the nitty gritty of like how alcohol affects specific hormones at specific times but but we know it it impacts our whole inner ecosystem and so because we're all connected it 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 impacts the way our whole body functions. So, you know, things like gut health, circadian rhythm, our menstrual cycle, regulating menopause with ease, those are all things that are impacted by hormones. And, you know, alcohol is pro-inflammatory, so it impacts gut health and, and the microbiome powerfully impacts hormones. So symptoms like menstrual pain and anxiety and PMS, PCOS, migraines, you know, menopause symptoms, those are all hormone, those can all be impacted by hormones. So, so alcohol throws all of that off and, and, and yeah, you, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's plenty of information for folks. I mean, it's just another reason not to drink. Right. right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so now that you remove the alcohol, you, you're still kind of having all these hormones and you mentioned like different fluctuations throughout the month. And so what are some ways that we can help support our hormonal health? Hormones are these messengers to us. They're signals to us. And so practices, the practices of yoga therapy and Ayurveda have helped me become more attuned to these messengers and to these signals that I was pushing down before, that I was too busy to, to listen to had you know too much to do to to listen to so so one is supporting support like listening to these signals and for me another thing has been education so as a person with ADHD and and as a person who menstruates estrogen is higher the first two weeks of my cycle and estrogen is related to the release of dopamine so it's, it's actually become really easy for me to manage my ADHD symptoms in those first two weeks because I've got a lot of estrogen and and therefore I've got more dopamine. But once in the, in the last two weeks of my cycle when the estrogen begins to drop, the dopamine also begins to drop. So that information has helped me understand that in those last two weeks of my cycle, I'm much more susceptible to going out of balance. And that, that deep... Uh, habit or or resource that I've learned from a young age from those days in high school of turning to alcohol to cope with that imbalance is still present for me. And so I know I'm most susceptible to falling out of balance and therefore maybe relying back on old coping mechanisms in those last two weeks. So that understanding for me has been empowering because then I get to, I, I know the way I have to take care of myself in those last two weeks are it is it, I require a lot more nourishment. I require a lot more self-care in those last two weeks. So information, 
understanding the different cycles in our body and in our lifetimes. The, the same thing is for perimenopause, estrogen goes down. So with, for women with ADHD, a, what we're finding is a lot of women are getting diagnosed with ADHD until this time of perimenopause and menopause. And that's because they've been able to manage up to that point. But as the estrogen goes down and the dopamine, therefore the dopamine goes down, we're turning to, you know, dopamine enhancing behaviors and, and uh, substances like alcohol. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. And then how about with men? How does the, yeah, <laughs> how do, how does alcohol affect the men's hormonal? I know that women and men, we, we like metabolize alcohol differently. And so our, our tolerances are very different from men. And I know that men's hormones are just pretty steady and consistent throughout the month and throughout their lifetime. So they're not susceptible in the same ways to these fluctuations that make make one more vulnerable to to maybe relying on drinking and dopamine kind of seeking behaviors just to maintain a baseline. And I also know that I think what the 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 research is showing is that there's a much bigger increase in women drinking at like the age of late fifties and sixties than we're seeing in an increase in men. So I don't know the exact impact it has on men's hormones. I, I, I feel confident in asserting it's, it's not a positive impact, but I know that they're just not in general having to navigate these cyclical experiences in their lifetime and and even in the month. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. So you're saying like, so perimenopause, your estrogen goes down, definitely menopause, postmenopause, low estrogen. And so with that comes low dopamine. And with that comes, you're more likely to be hunting for dopamine, which comes in a red bottle <laughs> in wine or whatever, wherever we get it, which, you know, it's pretty accessible. You can get that at the grocery store. So a lot more women end up developing problematic drinking in their 50s and 60s? Specifically women with ADHD. So that that mm. experience of the drop in, dopa, in, in estrogen and dopamine is experienced even more intensely for women with ADHD. But I think women in general, I think that's what, what the research shows is that the desire to drink goes up at, the, at those stages of life, but also our ability to metabolize it and and the the way it you know our tolerance for it drops, so it's this like kind of very perfect storm for disrupting our hormones, right? Because we want it more, but it impacts us more intensely, and then you know it it is impacting our hormones as well. And then, what is the connection between ADHD and and drinking problems? So. 25% is is the latest research I've seen. 25% of folks who are entering into treatment facilities have an ADHD diagnosis. So it's almost to the point where I think like everyone should be screened for ADHD if they're entering treatment. Um so so yeah, I think because, you know, again, it's this it's a it's a issue of dopamine and lack of dopamine and and impulsivity and we're, so folks are just more susceptible to to drinking and these kind of behaviors. And then again, with women, it's just this added piece of navigating the the turmoil, the emotional turmoil of 
the monthly cycle, which which can be so much more intense for women with ADHD. And actually, women with ADHD, 40% of women, 46% of women with ADHD also have PMDD, which is a, a, a much more severe form of PMS. It's it's a, a cyclical mood disorder related to your menstrual cycle. Mm, and remind me what that stands for. Yeah, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Okay. What are some ways... Besides drinking, what are some like natural ways or practical tips that you have to help someone manage their hormones and manage their moods and get dopamine in a natural way? This is such a beautiful conversation to have because there are so many and we can build resistance to hormone imbalance. And I, I one of my favorite Ayurvedic teachers says, you know, the the more complicated the the imbalance, the more simple the the strategy of the solution should be, which I love. And we have these three pillars of health, diet, lifestyle, and how we manage stress. And so we can keep it really simple by just kind of thinking of those pillars. So sleep hygiene is another one that's that's really helpful to think about. But as far as like kind of concrete ways to manage, I would say, you know, you know, for me, a daily yoga practice that is prescribed by my yoga therapist that helps me kind of land in that place of balance and regulation daily. So embodied practices are, are really powerful. Breath work is, is really powerful. You know, the breath connects our mind and our body and, it, and is a way to, to support our system and coming into a, a parasympathetic state. So breath work, mindful eating is something that Ayurvedic teaches us that, you know, when we, Ayurveda says that when we eat um, and we're stressed out, we don't just eat our food, but we also eat our emotions. So rituals for, you know, centering ourselves, offering, offering gratitude and, and eating in mindful ways can be a really powerful way to support our, our digestion, which is also, you know, connected to our emotions and our mind. So those are just a few things. I've only recently gotten into breath work. Like we did a breath work workshop experience when we were in Taos. I, that was not what I was expecting, I have to say. And so can you share a little bit about breath work and how you could practice that just at home if if you're just someone that lives in suburbia and you don't have access to a yoga studio or a breath work, you know, like how can just the ordinary person do it who's just being introduced to this kind of these kind of modalities? Again, yoga therapy and Ayurveda, we really look at this stuff at an individual level. What I would say, and this is what I say to my clients is i'll I'll offer you a breath technique, but then the point of it isn't that, the breathing practice has a specific effect because we're all so unique. So for one person, this might be a breath practice that really calms you down. And for another person, it might have, it might aggravate your system. So the point is to try something and then notice how it feels in your body. So what I would say is there's no one size fits all, but, but the point of it, what we really want is to just begin to pay attention. So I would say to start, I would encourage people to do a little breath assessment, maybe in the morning, in the afternoon, in the night. And and how you can kind of self-assess your breath is, you know, find a quiet place. You can place a hand on the heart or a, and a hand on the belly. Take a few deep breaths 
and then try to release all effort over your breathing. And this can be kind of hard to do on yourself, but I, it's it's worth the, the, the try. And almost like you would take your pulse, count the the length of your inhale and count the length of your exhale. So, and and notice sort of the patterning in your breath. Notice if you're if you're tending to to grasp or hold on to the breath at the top of the inhale. Notice the qualities of your breath, whether it's smooth or whether it's long or slow, or and and where in the body you're feeling the breath. So so start by just inviting in some curiosity for how you're experiencing your breath. So that would be part one. And then two, anytime we lengthen, anytime we focus on lengthening the exhale, that sends little messages to our body that it's safe to relax. Lengthening the inhale or holding the breath at the top of the inhale is encourages the sympathetic nervous system to activate. So the fight or flight response. And then anytime we lengthen and smooth out the exhale, we activate the parasympathetic. Once you get your breath count, so say you notice, all right, my, my, I'm exhaling for a count of two and I'm inhaling for a count of three. Then I would encourage you to, to just practice some progressive exhale breaths. Just allow the inhale to happen freely. And then exhale, you start at your exhale for two. And then do another round and try to extend your exhale for a count of three. And then maybe move up to six. So you can almost think of this like, Building that exhale capacity, it's like going to the gym and you're you're trying to build, you know, muscles in your body. You can you can also build your breath capacity. Spending a little time every day trying to lengthen that exhale, which we know sends signals to the body that it's safe to relax, parasympathetic turns on. That that can be a really beautiful way to just be in relationship to the breathing in your body and and help your body expand that exhale capacity. And that's so I, I love talking about breath work or, or using your breath because it's free and it's accessible, right? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so really focusing on the exhale and, you know, you'll hear a lot of people say like, I don't realize it, but I'm holding, yes. you know, I find myself holding my breath throughout the day. Oh. I, yeah. And so you're saying like, when you're holding your breath, you're kind of stimulating that fight or flight. Yeah, and mechanism. Yeah, and it's information that the nervous system is in a state of fight or flight as well. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I love that tip. What other kind of practical tools can you share? I think, you know, it takes a lot of courage to to start to listen to these signals. The other invitation I want to offer to people is to to be open to shifting your perspective to these signs of imbalance and on hormonal imbalance that might be communicated to us through that holding of the breath or a headache or digestive issues or, you know, menopause symptoms or, or you know, menstrual pain, be open to, to kind of being in relationship to those as signals and information that we can then pay attention to. And, and because that's, you know, our bodies are, are sending us signals and, and the more we can kind of be curious with compassion uh, about these different signals, I think the, the more empowered we can be to, to make some changes. So one, one other practical tip that can help just kind of nurture or soothe the system as we, as we, you know, get curious for, for just what's happening in our body 
is warming up some oil. The way I, I warm up my oil is I boil water and I put it in a mug and then I put like coconut oil or, you know, whether it's almond oil or, or a nice like organic oil in a small glass jar. And I put the glass jar in the, the hot water. So the, the, the oil gets warm. And then, you know, so before bed or wherever you can get five to 10 minutes to yourself, you can lock yourself in the bathroom or whatever you need to do and take that warm oil and massage your feet and go to each joint of your of your toes and and make circular motions and try to focus on deeply breathing and and that oil on the feet is a way to kind of ground that energy and and bring the energy down and out and and soothe the body and and connect with ourselves and and nourish ourselves because i think a lot of this is is like relating to how we nourish ourselves and expanding the way we think about nourishment i think that's one it's a it's a beautiful and powerful practice that can help us balance our our hormones and 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 our nervous system. Yeah, and then you'll have like really soft feet. <laughs> totally. Put some socks on, use a towel. You don't want to get the oil all over. <laughs> well, that sounds lovely and like like you're not really using a special oil. You can just use coconut oil or whatever you have. So just warm oil and a nice little foot rub. Absolutely. But yeah, focus on your breath, be in relationship to your breathing and your body signals and give yourself a warm oil massage on your feet. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do that tonight or I'll make my husband do that. <laughs> even better, even better. <laughs> well, what would you say, I'm going to change gears a little bit before we wrap up, but since this is a podcast for people looking to change their relationship with alcohol, what, what are your top tips for anyone who's looking to change their drinking? Not to do it alone. Mm. And, and, you know, that's part of hormone health too. When we're, when we're isolated, our body experiences that as a threat and we, we get stuck in fight or flight. So I think join a community. And uh, I just have to say, Deb, like being at the retreat and connecting with women who have been in your community, it's so clear how powerful community is specifically for what it requires to to stop drinking and, you know, living a life that you redesigning a life or living a life that that you want to live is is hard, courageous work. And my experience was that the the women in it, at the retreat who have been involved in your community have have found that support and empowerment to to walk away from alcohol um, because of that con that that deep connection and the community that that you have cultivated. So my my big message is don't do it alone and join a community. Mm. Thank you for saying that and noticing that. And what's interesting too is so much of it is online and do you, do you think this is back just to like hormones and being around each other how is that affected by being on online because i i feel like who knew you could get so close to a group of people <laughs> that you've only met through the screen and feel this connection and and maybe it transcends being in person or, you know, do you need to be around a physical community or what, like, what are your thoughts about that? Totally. You know, I think I'm a person who is like a highly sensitive person. So for me, my system 
like thrives on the opportunity to get that social connection and not have necessarily all of the stimuli or all of the the extra kind of like social stressors that can come from being in person. So I, I, there's an absolutely a place for both, but I think that being online offers certain people like, like highly sensitive people or people that tend to be more shy or just whose social battery gets depleted more quickly and in, in real life, in person situations, it's such a powerful opportunity and an invitation for those folks to really benefit from the from this from the connection that comes from being online. So as one of those people, I love it and I'm so grateful for it. But I do think there's a time and a place for in person too. Like we need it all, but but the the yeah. online is beautiful. I agree. And I it's interesting just kind of reflecting back to when COVID started. I did health coaching through my job at the hospital. And get, and counselors said this too, and, and maybe you've experienced this in your own work, but it was like, how are we going to connect with people online or over the phone? And it was interesting because I found that connecting with people, even with the screen off, even just on the phone, we actually ended up having deeper connections than I think that we would have in person. And I think that they may have been the kind of people that you're talking about, Maya, like you're, where you are a little more introverted and you do need some space to just look around. And maybe it's not as comfortable to be like looking at someone and telling them some deep stuff. And so I think that it taught us all these different ways we can, can connect and alternative ways to do it. And like it's so beautiful with your work, you do, you have an online virtual practice. I do. I do. Well, yeah. tell, tell people how, well, if you want to share about more about your experience with, with the online thing, but then also I want people to know how to connect with you. So I, I do, I offer one-on-one -on -one yoga therapy and Ayurveda consultations online and I find that it works really well for me and, and the people that come to me, you know, are people who do well with that as, as well. So I think it, it is a personal preference, but, but there's enough folks out there that do well that, that makes sense for me to, to continue to offer online uh, consultations. And, you know, it, it, I get to main, keep myself really regulated and present. And yeah, so for me, it's really beautiful. So. So yeah, I am. I have a, a wait list. I'm going to start taking on new clients in November, and I'm. I, I mentioned I'm. I'm going to India for a month to do a, a Ayurvedic treatment, a month long Ayurvedic treatment. So I'm. I'm putting one on one stuff on hold for a month, but starting in November, I'm going to start back up seeing clients. And yeah, if you're looking for you know holistic tools and lifestyle mind body ways of of managing sort of the underlying root stuff that lead us to to these behaviors feel free to reach out and we can set up a call and i would love to connect with anyone that that resonates with of course well i appreciate that and and some of my goal with this podcast is just to present different ways to change your drinking make sure that you have like all kinds of different tools to help you because everyone is so different we're all so unique and and that's wonderful and it's great that there's these different 
modalities out there for and and just see like be open-minded be curious like you were talking about even with your body but be curious to to different modalities to help you and you never know like that could be the secret sauce so how can someone find you you can find me on my website it's integratedmindbodytherapy.com you can get on my wait list and connect with me there i'm also on instagram i have a personal account and a business account that I'm building. My business account is Maya Holistic Therapy. So you can connect with me there. And then you can also like come hang out with me on my personal account as well at Maya B underscore one, two, one. So yeah, the, that's where you can find me. And I, I just love connecting with people. So feel free to, to just message me or, or any kind of connection is welcome. Well, thank you, Maya. I'm so glad that we got to do this interview. I, I know that you're all the way in Bali, which I think is really cool. And then you're going to go to India. And I just, I love hearing your story of how you went from being a burned out teacher to living your best life and really listening to yourself. And I'm so happy to know you. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Thank you, Deb. I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here and connect with you. It's, it's truly a, a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Tipping Point podcast. Please share and review the show so you can help other people too. I want you to know I'm always here for you. So please reach out and talk to me on Instagram at Alcohol Tipping Point and check out my website, alcoholtippingpoint.com for free resources and help. No matter where you are on your drinking journey, I want to encourage you to just keep practicing, keep going. I promise you are not alone and you are worth it. Every day you practice not drinking is a day you can learn from. I hope you can use these tips we talked about for the rest of your week. And until then, talk to you next time.